0: I have to give my mother credit as well because I was still living at home. I became a nurse manager at 25. And so and I would constantly complain about some things. And my mom just one day said to me, she said, you have one or two options. She said, you need to shut up and stop complaining or you need to do something about it. That was a wake-up call for me. And so, and that's when I decided, well, I couldn't just continue on pursuing and moving to a clinical nurse specialist track if I really had my heart set on the leadership piece. And as I stated earlier, then I felt I had an obligation to prepare myself to have that voice. So I didn't want to just be a nurse in the boardroom. I wanted to be a voice in the boardroom that had nursing training. And to me, that was a very different message from just being a nurse sitting there.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal a show dedicated to exploring the foundations of nursing science and practice, including theory, measurement, and methodology, and the first podcast of its kind to do a deep dive into the nuances of nursing research. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared on this podcast are my own, and none of the information I share constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Finally, you listeners are what makes this show possible. I believe providers and researchers like myself are public servants and should not be beholden to corporate advertisers, so I have thus far refused sponsorship for this show, and I will not accept any advertisements of any kind. But there's still a lot of work that goes into preparing for and creating these episodes for you week to week. So if you would like to donate a small amount to support the show and keep it going, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal to do just that. It would be greatly appreciated. Today, I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing Dr. Martha A. Dawson, a DNP prepared nurse and healthcare systems expert. Dr. Martha Dawson is nationally and internationally recognized as a global thought leader in the field of nursing and in health systems administration. She's an associate professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and she's been a leader in practice, education, research, and especially leadership. As you will see during our interview, Dr. Dawson has a special affinity for and a deep expertise in healthcare leadership. During her tenure as the Nursing and Health Systems Administration Specialty Track Coordinator at UAB, Martha has inspired innumerable students to seek higher education. And, after only having known her for an hour, she has already had a profound influence on my own motivation. Dr. Dawson is a Sparkman Global Health Center Scholar at UAB, a Fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives, a Robert Wood Johnson Nurse Executive Fellow, and a Johnson & Johnson Wharton Nurse Administrative Fellow. She has won numerous awards, which include American Organization of Nurse Executives Prism Award for Diversity, President's Teaching Excellence Award, Graduate Dean's Mentorship Award, Madeline R. Zaworski Award for Outstanding Leadership, and the Lillian Holland Harvey Award. She is a published author and was recognized by Sigma Theta Tau in 2010 as one of the 10 national leaders included in the book The Power of 10, Nurse Leaders Address the Profession's 10 Most Pressing Issues. Dr. Dawson is devoted to developing and mentoring the next generation of healthcare leaders. She currently serves as the 13th president of the National Black Nurses Association and is committed to increasing diversity in nursing, as you will hear in our conversation today. Please join me for this truly inspirational and informative episode with Dr. Martha A. Dawson. Martha, thank you so much for joining me. Um, can you introduce yourself for the audience and give us a brief overview of who you are and what your main interests are?
0: Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Dr. Martha Dawson. Uh, I am currently an associate professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I'm also the current president of the National Black Nurses Association. I've been in this seat for, uh, since August of 2019 and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I've been a nurse for a long time, so uh, I'm not gonna be shy about revealing my age indirectly, but I've been a nurse for 44 years. And I like to refer to myself as a nurse nurse. I enjoy every aspect of nursing. Uh, I started out as a a BS graduate uh, from the University of Alabama at Birmingham where I'm currently teaching. I received my doctorate of nursing practice from Case Western University in Cleveland, Ohio at the uh, Francis Payne Bolton School of Nursing. So I've had quite a long career in nursing. When I was a bedside nurse, I enjoyed working at the bedside. I started out as a cardiovascular intensive care nurse, right out of undergraduate uh, school, uh, working with open heart patients. And back in the days, um, we did not have neonates or pediatric or adult units we took care of all population mm-hmm. so everything from a newborn to my oldest patient was a 90 year old uh, and i must say that i learned something along the journey from every patient that i've ever had contact with uh, and then i left the intensive care unit and went to a pre and post cardiovascular unit as a charge nurse and eventually became the nurse manager of that unit When I started my master's, my intention was to become a cardiovascular clinical nurse specialist, and and I did complete all of the academic requirements for that particular track, but then by that time, I really enjoyed the leadership aspect and the ability to effect change and to influence and to help develop others. But also, you know, back in those days, the same issue we hear a lot today is that they find one of the best clinicians to tap to be managers, and many times you don't have that managerial background education, not training. So, I decided to continue on with my master's education, and and I received a dual master's in nursing and hospital administration, mm-hmm. and I did a, a focused residency in hospital administration because once I made that decision that I wanted to be in that leadership sphere, I. I wanted to take my clinical experience to the boardroom with me, but I knew that my clinical experience wasn't gonna allow me to engage in the business aspect, managing a nursing department or collaborating with my colleagues that might've been a human resource uh, financial management and and again, graduated from a hospital administration program. So I didn't wanna just be a nurse in the boardroom I wanted to be a voice in the boardroom that had nursing training. And to me, that was a very different message from just being a nurse sitting there and having someone defer to me only as they were talking about clinical implications and and things that were basically clinical-based. Because one of the things that really drove me into the leadership sphere and the administrative sphere is I felt that nurses really understood the science of nursing but also understood the financial implications uh, of uh, providing healthcare services and the role that nurses contributed to that. Although we are considered to be an expense center, I appreciated the fact that hospital was the business and nurses contributed to the revenue aspect of that business. And so then after that, I kind of became like a nursing director, eventually an um, associate chief nursing officer, uh, chief nursing officer, and then a VP of clinical affairs, which included other areas besides just nursing reporting to me. And so I found that by going through the hospital administration aspect and combining that with my nursing administration, is that I was able to walk out with the human resource, the legal aspect, as well as the financial aspect. So I would say to anyone who wants to get into leadership these days is that you have to be able and willing to step into that space of true administrative leadership. I know we say that all nurses are leaders, but we have to look at that through the lens of the different levels that nurses function at within an organization, as well as within society.
1: One of the things that strikes me about what you're saying is that you seem to have a very solid understanding of the systems-based approach to thinking about these problems of leadership and management and administration. And um, I often find that systems-based thinkers do a really nice job of pulling in all the different perspectives that are required to kind of get a full picture. Um, How did you get interested in you know, this organizational and health systems approach and like the career barrier stuff that you're working on now, how did that start for you?
0: I have to be honest with you. I identified a gap in terms of the leadership that I was working sometime under. And there were opportunities and times during my career as a young nurse manager where I would point out things that may not have been financially sound or may not have been uh, focus on patient safety the way I envision that it should. And other times when I felt that uh, staff was being put at risk. And, so, and to be honest with you, uh, I have to give my mother credit as well because I was still living at home. I became a nurse manager at 25. And so and I would constantly complain about some things. And my mom just one day said to me, she said, you have one or two options. He said, you need to shut up and stop complaining or you need to do something about it. And that was a wake-up call for me. And so, and that's when I decided, well, I couldn't just continue on pursuing and moving to a clinical nurse specialist track if I really had my heart set on the leadership piece. And as I stated earlier, then I felt I had an obligation to prepare myself to have that voice. And, and you're correct. When you're in an administrative leadership role, You can't have just a focus on nursing. You have to look at the big system piece as well. And I think a lot of times that's where we fail to educate nurses to that that platform of what I call cross-pollination of responsibilities. Uh, Because when a nurse says, well, you don't represent nursing. Yes, I do represent nursing, but at the same time, I have to look at that big picture piece as well because I have to represent the patients. I have to represent uh, the board. Yes, I do have to represent those individuals that are partners with us in the community. So your, your span of influence become much larger than nursing. But what I like to say is my heart and my action will always be towards doing what is best for nursing and what is best for my patients. So even though I'm not at the bedside delivering that care, I still consider those individuals to be my patients because I'm responsible for them. And I still consider those nurses to be my colleagues. So it's not that they are my nurses, I don't own them. They are my nurse colleagues whom I happen to have the privilege to represent. And then I need to be able to represent them at the highest level, which means that intra-professional piece is there, but the intra-professional piece is extremely important if you're going to have
1: influence. One of the other things that I read on your bio is that you have an interest in implementation science. And as my listeners know, I'm very passionate about how important implementation research and practice can be for nurses and for the system of healthcare and the ways that nursing interacts with that system. How did you end up beginning to use implementation science in your professional research and maybe in your practice as an administrator?
0: I became interested in that from the perspective of trying to improve patient care outcomes and looking at it from the patient perspective and also looking at it in terms of, so what can nursing contribute to this implementation? Because, you know, for so long within not just nursing, but within healthcare, that was a big division between researchers who was focusing on the science and then taking that science and putting it into action. And and so it was for me is that why do we have these researchers whom I respect, but they complete their dissertation, their studies and all these things and it kind of rests on their shelves in their office or it resides within the dissimulation space of writing articles. But let's face it, sometimes those articles was written so technically that an average nurse could not pick it up, disciple it, and then implement it. So to me, implementation science is helping those individuals at the bedside to look at that research and then identify how is it gonna make their practice better. Rather that practice has to do with direct patient care outcomes, system outcomes, or professional development. So to me, that should be the entire core of why we do research is so it can be implemented and change can be effective and improvement should occur as the priority in terms of outcome. One of the things that really attracted me eventually to the DNP as a degree is the fact that when they first started talking about the DNP, they said there would be Collaboration between the PhD and other uh, doctorial uh, prepared nurses and the DMP nurse who would be primarily in those practice sites, implementing those uh, those findings and those results. And so I've seen some variation of that now, and I'm gonna be honest with you, it concerns me because to me that would be should be the hallmark of DMP education is. I'm waiting for the day that some academic school will say, we are going to educate DMP and PhD students together. Yes, that may be a point where they both kind of gravitate off in different direction to complete their degrees in terms of the, both the rigor and in terms of the PhD program, and the implementation aspect of the DNP. But at some point we can't, and what I see, and this is my opinion, so I will state it. What I see emerging now is I keep seeing a DNP column and I keep seeing a PhD column and the two are not cross pollinating themselves in terms of advancing nursing science. That is the way that uh, degree was uh, articulated. And and I was actually at several of the tables when they were talking about the DMP, prior to uh, it being politics in Kentucky. And I think the other place was, uh, those was the first two programs that started implementing um, that degree within their academic environment.
1: So I have two thoughts on that. I appreciate you sharing that. And I couldn't agree more on really each of those points. I will say um, one of my, and my listeners will recognize this, train of thought too. But one of the things that I'm passionate about is getting people to understand that these dichotomous, categorical sort of black or white columns, as you said, like this is the DNP, this is the PhD, they're not so discrete. In reality, there's a lot of, there's a continuous overlap in some ways. And like you said, I really like this idea of the cross-pollination, the kind of integration of aspects that overlap. And then the other thing that really resonates with me about what you said about implementation is that often research kind of, even if it's really good and it shows that something is efficacious or effective or whatever the case is, what that research may not show is, can it be integrated in that health system with those nurses or those doctors or those healthcare providers? Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I think, again, that we have to become deliberate when we talk about research teams and that it's, it's not just creating a, a, a team that says we can check off the box that we ask, we've had collaborative research teams in place. But that means bringing in the right people to the table. And that could be a bedside nurse that is only a bachelor prepared nurse. But that that person understand the aspect of providing care to patients then that person can bring something of value to that research team. And then if you have that that scientist who is so well-grained in the science of whatever problem you're addressing, they're going to bring that higher level piece. And then where I see that DMP person is, they're going to be the bridge between that high-level scientist and, and the provider. Whether that provider could be a nurse, a nurse practitioner, or it could be, even a non-nurse uh, practitioner, depending on what you're addressing. You know, we could be talking about pressure ulcers, and yes, if, if it's the non-licensed staff who are doing most of the turning and the toileting of those patients, it may not be a bad idea to even have them at the table once that DNP person starts bridging that gap. You want to talk to the patient who's going to really be providing the care from the studies that we are doing. And it could be, Maybe the, the, the paraprofessional not involved at all, but you need the nurse involved. But then you may look beyond the nurse, if it's a respiratory related problem and say, guess what? We need to not only have a nurse, but guess what? We need to have someone here from respiratory therapy. And we may also need to have someone here uh, from food and nutrition. If that part is there, I can remember as a young chief nursing officer, Uh, At the university that I was the CNO at, I was able to bring in the first PhD prepared nurse to begin to work with my nursing staff and create a research department within the hospital. And that person also had like a 50 percent appointment at the school of nursing. So just imagine how effectively that was with working and doing things together. But one of the things I can remember clearly articulating to the person is that, yes, you you are a nurse scientist. You're working with our nurses, but we cannot work in silos. You you have to continue to look out and ask yourself, do I need a pharmacist as we're implementing this part of the research of this project? Do I need a respiratory therapist? Do I need to engage even environmental service if I'm looking at infection control issues? And so one of the things I was able to implement at that particular institution, not because I brought it to the table, but because some nurses brought it to me, and that was a process called practice development units. And we was able to actually work with some of our international colleagues from Leeds who came over and worked with my staff and I to implement that. But again... It was engaging everyone from that bedside up, and getting them to own their uh, their macro system, and begin to ask critical questions about change. It was uh, giving a nurse the right and the power to make decision, but also to bring other into that decision making aspect with them. And that was one of the things I learned early on, even as a young administrator, is that. And because I had to wrestle with my decision when I decided that I was going to go into that uh, nursing administration space, I just thought I was all of that as a cardiovascular nurse. I was clinically competent. You can give me any patient you wanted to. Give, give me that newborn today and throw me at a 16-year-old tomorrow with a totally different diagnosis, such as Marfan disease. And then tomorrow, give me that complex, you know, uh older patient that got three uh, coronary bypasses repair plus a VAB, And I was just in my element. But as I began to grow into my administrative position, I had to step back and have a conversation with myself and say, Martha, you cannot be competent in both of these spaces because they're so different. That's when I start to realize you, I don't have to remain that high level of competency in the clinical space. I needed, again, to appreciate, understand what other brought to the table and what I needed to go out there and tap that neuro nurse or go out there and tap that nurse who had the stroke experience. I didn't have to sit there and pretend that I was the expert in all these different clinical things. What I needed to be able to do would be the great leader to know, hey, listen, if you're calling me to a meeting and we're going to really talk about a lot of clinical things as it relates to XYZ, I need to tap the right nurse manager and the right nurses at the bedside. They need to be in the room with me with this conversation because I wanted to continue to grow in that system and leadership space.
1: And like you alluded to earlier, there is an entire domain of expertise in knowing who to tap into at what time, like who is the right professional for this based on the issue. And, and it's interesting that you saw in yourself in that, That moment where you had to have that conversation, which I'm sure was very hard, this idea that I really want to grow in that realm of expertise. So that's very interesting to hear. Let me back up just a little bit. Um, And we've talked a lot about the leadership component and uh, administration. And I wonder if we can move over to kind of academics a little bit. What are some of the hurdles that you have faced early on as an up-and-coming academic, and do any of those hurdles persist for you today?
0: Okay. One of the things, too, is that I'm one of those individuals, I consider myself to be a planner. I've always been a planner. So somewhere along my career, I had said that I knew that I wanted to end my career consulting and also teaching. And so with that in mind, there were several things I did, again, when I was younger, One is I connected myself to uh, a national uh, company that provided education not only to nurse leaders, but also to other leaders in other disciplines. And so I I traveled the country for a period of time where I would just put on one-day seminars for them. And I could be in California today, New York tomorrow, and then I can be in Chicago, Detroit, anywhere teaching. you know, leadership um uh, principles and things. And so that was one thing I did. The other thing I, I did I started off again when I was a very young nurse, probably in my late twenties and early thirties. But every facility that I've been aligned with prior to getting in academia, I served as an adjunct faculty. And so serving as an adjunct faculty did give me an opportunity to understand some things and prepare myself in terms of the teaching, uh, the pedagogy of, of teaching and, and being able to step into that space. And then as I start learning more about teaching uh, adult learners, uh, so I was preparing myself, I think, for this educational piece because I said, I wanted to end my education that way. But prior to entering the education, I did start my own consulting company for a period of time. And so that, I moved into uh, academia. I I felt that, I believe that I eased into it, you know, relatively easy. Now there was still some things that I had to learn, curriculum development and um, and, and, uh, designing course modules and those type of things. But one of the things that I always know is that, and I tell this to everyone, if you really learned the nursing process, the old way that I learned the nursing process, where you have to do your assessment, and then you do your diagnoses, and you come up with your interventions, and then you implement those, you make sure they're evidence-based, and then you evaluate, and you start the process. If you know the nursing process, I say you can figure out anything if you're a good nurse. (laughs) I use it all the time, whether I'm talking finance, human resource, dealing with whatever type of complex issue, buying a car, buying a home, you name it. (laughs) Uh, Because it's nothing other than a good analytical process. And what I learned along the way of having my diverse education in business and, and administration is that they also have analytical processes. So I can be looking at a legal issue and still use that nursing process because it's an analytical process. I can do the same thing if I'm looking at a patient care issue in terms of uh, improvement science. You know, I, I can do those things or looking at translational science. I can use those same models. Now, we may change the words that we call them, but they're the same. I can remember when I first started as a part-time faculty at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in the Nursing and Health System Administration track. They had their actually program for the Nursing and Health System Administration track had not been updated in a while. So um, one of my colleagues, started one week earlier, and then I started, and what we looked at each other. We were the two new kids on the blocks, and I didn't know about her, but I thought I was coming in to join some experienced faculty, and lo and behold, it was she and I. <laughs> uh, and But we struggled that first semester, but by the end of the first semester, we both just looked at each other and said, this needs to be improved, and guess what? Neither one of us own it, so we're not going to hurt each other feeling. We need to blow this up, change it and fix it. And, and I found myself bringing in concepts and models that and things that I had learned in business and I wanted the thing I said to them, I said, we need to do a SWOT analysis of these courses of each course. We need to identify what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, you know, what are the threats, what are the opportunities, you know? And so as we began to just use that model and some other models that they brought to the table as well, in terms of looking at, we redesigned the entire program and and, and we were able to come up with something that we were very proud of, you know? And then after we redesigned it again, we evaluated it again, and did a little bit more tweaking of it. And, and so I, I think that, If you want to move into academia, first develop your craft so that you can become a a subject matter expert in whatever it's going to be. And then be able to to think about, again, when you're in academia as a faculty, there are a lot of things that they want you to be able to do in terms of publishing, presentation, being creative about developing new uh, teaching methodologies. But you can never forget that it's not about you, it's about the student. And that's one of the things that I brought from my leadership into academia, because I never felt that in my leadership space that it was about me. It was always about the individuals that I was representing. And that could have been, again, my employees, the patients, the physicians, the community, the profession. So I think with that mindset, I have to speak for myself, it has served me well. Because again, I try to engage my students as student colleagues, because I primarily teach in the master's and then I advise students in the DNP program. I don't wanna just refer to them as students because they already have a degree. They've already have work experience. So I think out of respect of me saying you are my student colleagues, I'm appreciating both that you come to, me with some knowledge, skill set, education, and training, and I want to respect that. But also, I want to respect you as a student because I should be introducing you to new concepts, new ideas, and also more than anything else, I should be stretching you to imagine what the future of nursing and the future of healthcare can be. I don't want to just repeat what I know because those things are old and outdated but I want you to be able to innovate. I want you to be able to go to that next level. So I feel that I'm there to be their motivator, their supporter, and also to challenge them. And one of the things i love to tell my students now is I say, you know, if you can only achieve what I've achieved, then I have failed because I'm only teaching you then to walk in my footstep. My role as your teacher and facilitator is to make sure that you don't make the same mistakes that I may have made, which is going to save you time, then you should go further than I've gone. And you should achieve more because hopefully I'm helping you to have not only the benefit of my experience, but the support for you to be willing to step out and take risk and develop your own pathway.
1: I love that. Before we actually started recording, you mentioned um, a grant that you were putting in in One of the more recent things you said, you mentioned academia and all the things that go into writing papers and doing presentations and um, things like this. And I wonder, one of the things I'm intrigued by is trying to figure out, it's clear to me the translational element of the DNP academician, but I wonder in terms of academic research in like the more traditional sense, can you talk a little bit about your experiences doing research? Have you been, as a DNP prepared nurse, independently funded for your investigations? Um, or do you have the desire to be, if you haven't already?
0: I did for a HRSA grant. And that, and that was in the context of uh, a workforce diversity grant that I had here at the university. First, I was able to join uh, with a team where someone else actually had wrote the grant and I became the project director. And then with the next one, I became the principal investigator for the grant. And I probably wrote 98% of that grant. Had some input from others, but then one of the thing I learned is that sometimes even when you get input from others, they don't understand the grant process, for that particular grant as well as you, then you can make some mistakes. So I had some people that, because that was a continuation grant, they was trying to lead me down the road of writing it as if it was the original grant. And, and HRSA was looking for totally a different format because when you're doing a continuation grant, they want you to talk about the success of the first grant you had mm. and what things did you learn from that, what things you may carry forward, what things are you going to do differently as well. I look back on my, my career and starting with my educational process And I have to say that uh, the University of Alabama in Birmingham gave me a very solid undergraduate and graduate degree. So although I have a DNP, I can remember as a young nurse, in my BSN program, we spent, was on a quarter system. So remember I said I'm old, so most people don't even use quarter systems anymore. But for two quarters, we walked completely through the entire research process. I mean, all five chapters coming up with a project, having to implement that project. (laughs) And and then when I moved into my master's program, it was a very intense research-based program as well that we had to do uh, the entire research process as well as take statistics. We had to write every chapter of the research uh, method. And believe it or not, at that time, Our outcome really was we had to select a journal, and we had to write an article. Whether we had it published or not, that was the last thing we was evaluated on. So that's very similar to what some DNP programs are doing today. Now, when I entered my DNP program, I was fortunately at Case, so I was really able to do my my work at, uh, and that's why I went to Case because at that time Case had three very defined pathways for getting your DNP. You could do it as an educator, you could do it as a leader, or you can do it as a faculty in terms of academic approach. And I love that because I went into the leadership space and I was fortunate that uh, my chair was someone who was a PhD prepared person, but she had just written uh, the medical surgical textbook that had been, there have been years I mean, like in the digits of years since a, a real in-depth med search textbook had been written. But the key thing that attracted me, and they matched us together perfectly, was she had been a chief nursing officer. So I had someone who understood me with that. Then end up selecting someone else who I was just going down through and just picking. Some didn't know that she, that person, started the first nursing administration program. And then I ended up with someone that was an epidemiologist and I thought, oh my God, this woman was smart. So I felt like I had both of all three worlds, you know, individuals that, that was so good and they allowed me not to hold back in terms of what I wanted to do. And, uh, but I do remember that, my, that my, my chairperson said to me one day, Martha, this is a DMP, it's not a PhD. You got to close this up and get them <laughs> But, but again, I think it was because I got so engaged. And then I, I really started reflecting on myself and said, you know what? You really should have gotten that PhD. Because again, it opened up in me my interest in research that I have not allowed myself to really go in that direction because of the fact that I wanted to be in leadership. And back when I entered leadership, leadership and research and all those types of things wasn't being discussed at, at the same time that much. And then it gradually got to that as I started moving into the CNO and I started saying I needed to have a researcher on my team so that we can do some of the patient improvement and outcome things that I wanted to do. So you come full circle, uh, but I would say that I've been, I have been—I was blessed, I think, throughout my education uh, to, to be afforded those opportunities to sometimes step outside of the space of what the confined programmatic <laughs> things should be, you know? So for example, when I was doing my nursing and health system administration, we was only required to take some courses in business and maybe one or two courses in hospital administration. But I decided, no, I need to understand law. I need to understand finance. And I can actually remember going talking to the finance person and asking him, which was in the school of health professional on um, the hospital administration, Do you mind if I would take his graduate level course? And he said, well, you have to at least have had college level accounting. And I just looked at him and I said, well, I had bookkeeping in high school. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure he was saying to himself, I just told you college level accounting and you're telling me you had bookkeeping. (laughs) And so after he kind of gave me this silent look, I I said, just allow me in the class. And then I guess I made it worse. I said. I have a good friend, and that's his major. He's a, he's an accountant major. I will get one of his book, and I promise I would read all everything through the book. And if I'm failing by midterm, I'll drop. I, when I look back on that, it, even at that time, I look back, and, and when he said yes, I, I think he just said to himself, if she's crazy enough to sit here and keep arguing about it, I'm just going to tell her yes, you know. But again, I got into the class, got into some study groups really kept my promise that I'm learning about accounting at the same time I'm trying to learn about finance. But again, I found myself fascinated. But the story about the bookkeeping wasn't bad because I went into bookkeeping in high school and I loved it. And so going through those courses and being able to, and, and I can remember one day when we took our second exam and the professor came to class and he said, hmm, I'm not too happy about the way the grades turned out here. Only two people made a B. You know, I was I was picking up my books then getting ready to go out the door. Cause I'm saying, okay, <laughs> that I'm not one of those people. I don't know what it is. Maybe I gotta see, but you better just pick your stuff up just in case. And when he gave me my paper and I had an eighty six, my eyes got like the size of a turkey egg. And I went, You are kidding. And everybody in the room <laughs> looked at me, so By that time, everyone in the class knew I was one of the one that made it be. And I was the only nurse in the class. So uh, (laughs) I thought, now you got a target on your back. (laughs) (laughs) But again, I I just say step outside your comfort zone when you know what you want to do. Be willing to invest in you. I tell my students all the time that you are a product. And you have to market yourself and fine-tune yourself to the edge. So that you realize in a competitive environment, you can always be hopefully maybe one notch ahead of someone else. Not to compete with them, but to prepare yourself to be.
1: That's a really great story and, um, and <laughs> an inspiring one. I have to say, Martha, one of the things that I really like about people who have a systems lens when they think about things is that they get sometimes a lot of experience in a particular domain, but often it's like a little bit from this bucket, a little bit from this bucket, but it opens up the door to knowing a little about a a lot of different things. So with the experience that you've had, the vast experience in nursing and in health systems, with the work that you're doing now, what do you see as being a crucial gap that a DNP trained person who wishes to investigate those areas should really think about? Like, what what do you think some of those key areas that need to be explored would be?
0: If you're talking about a DNP person that wants to enter into leadership, you know, and, and that could be leadership as a, maybe a director or a chief information officer, or it could be leadership as it relates to maybe being the person that is over the Center for Nursing Excellence, or you could want to be that director over multiple units and have a nurse manager's report to you. I think my advice will still be the same is focus on things that you don't let someone else identify your weaknesses. You identify those yourself. Don't let someone else identify your gaps. Uh, And you begin to feel those. And, and, And again, yes, I just think to be an effective leader, I can't be an expert in everything. For me, if someone said, so what are you an expert in, Martha, in terms of leadership? I, there would be two things I would mention. I'm very proud. I'm a financial person. I love finance. I tell people all the time, you don't know what to do with your money, give it to me. I'll play with it, you know. But I, I can take a complex budget for a grant and I guarantee you I can put that that budget together where someone would say, wow, that's a great budget. I, I, did, I was working collaboratively with a group of PhD uh, faculty in terms of submitting a large grant. And I told them, I said, give me the budget, I'll handle it for you. And uh, when we got the budget and I sent it back in, the first thing one of the the, the major PIs on on the grant said, I am keeping this template the rest of my life. It's the best budget I've ever seen. (laughs) I called him and I said, do you still have that budget? He said, yes, Martha. I'm not going to ever get rid of that budget. (laughs) I said, well, will you send me a copy? I'm like, I can't find it. So so for me, I would say if I had to look at a technical skill, finance budgeting those type of things i would say that is mine and 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 now some people think that creating a budget is about numbers it's not it is about being able to envision the activities that you want to do and appropriately quantifying those with dollars and that's what i tell people all the time it's first about what you're going to do and then you have to decide how much money i need to do that and so that's why i like you know the financial piece if I had to look at the other side of what I bring to leadership, it really is that, that third sense of being able to be innovative but never lose sight of my purpose, which is, again, service to the people, the patients, the system, and society. And, and so with that, yes, I can have those different areas where I'm learning different things, but I always reset myself to am I affecting the change and that influence with people? Because to me, that's what leadership is about it's about people. Am I doing that effectively? So, can I identify that next young person who needs to be just encouraged? No, you need to go get your Ph.D. And and believe me, many of nurses I've said that to, and I often tease myself and laugh. And I say, I had to go back and get some kind of Ph.D., some kind of doctorate degree. Because I kept telling the young people, you need to go back and get your doctorate degree. And they said, you don't have one. And I'm going, but I'm old. okay, (laughs) I'm more towards the end of my career. And they weren't buying that. So I thought, okay, Martha, you got to go get a, a, a doctorate degree so you can remove that because I want them to hear me. Because I was saying to many of them, I would say, and sometimes I would say to a person, yes, a DNP will serve you well. And someone else would come and talk to me about a DNP. And I'm going, I need for you to go back and think about this for me. I need you to pull out a sheet and put DNP on one side, PhD on the other side, make a list of all the things you can do with the other one. Think about where your heart is at. I said, because I see you as a PhD. The next thing, another person comes back and they already been accepted into a PhD program. So I I think, again, to me, that's part of my people piece because leaders have to help to shape, encourage, and support the people that they are working with. I like to think of myself as that type of individual and type of leader.
1: So I know we're coming up on time. I have uh, one more question for you, if you don't mind. One of my personal interests is in methodology and measurement, and one of the things I've been thinking a lot about lately is multicultural methodology and how do we improve the representation in research, how do we um, make our research measures and our research outcomes more inclusive of marginalized groups, and the fact that you are the president and CEO of the National Black Nurses Association right now, how did you get involved in that, and then what advice would you have for me as a budding clinical methodologist interested in questions of how to improve this issue of diversity and inclusion?
0: That, that's a great, a uh, great question, and it's not an easy one either. And most people would say, mm, "I'm surprised to hear her say that." Um, but again, when I begin to think about where we are in the nursing profession, and the other thing is, is that I also sit on the, um, I'm a co lead. Uh, the National Commission on Addressing Racism in Nursing. And with that group, we have broken it up into what we're calling four different spheres or four different pillars. So we're looking at uh, racism within education, practice, advocacy, and also research. And I think that goes across your question that you just asked is, how do I begin to help to inform as it relates to research and science that need to have the diversity of the patient population or whatever population that we're looking at. And and again, I'm looking at this diversity across whether we are talking about gender, race, ethnicity. And I love to put in classism as well because some people forget about that's part of what causes the social determinants of health. We do have a different class system in every society. I don't care where you go. It's there. And and sometimes it is the classism that causes more of a problem sometimes than the racism. Because embedded in that classism is if all of a sudden all of the males disappeared, guess what? That's going to be a hierarchical structure with females. It's part of our nature until we can learn to address that and identify different theoretical concepts to help us explain why is it. And if anyone doubts what I'm saying, I I, I use these analogies sometimes and I'm not picking on any country, but I I say, if I go to Russia, there's a certain group of people that are depressed. there. They have their hierarchy of structure. And when I was younger and in high school, I did a lot of reading uh, 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 about Russia because I got very involved and interested in, in the comrades when I would be reading about them. But if I, if I go to China at this time, from a race and ethnicity standpoint, the majority of the people are, are Chinese. They are of the same. But do you not still have that classism and sexism embedded within that society that oppresses a portion of their society? If I went to India, I would find the same thing with their caste system. So we can't deny that we as humans have that tendency to want to have a hierarchical or a superior structure within our societies. And I perfectly say societies to put an S on that because Mm -hmm. we are not just talking about one society. We're talking about multiple ones. So one of the things that I think we have to begin to appreciate is go back and revisit some of the theoretical concepts that I'm trying to introduce the uh, commissioner group to at this time. For example, there's a theory out there by Adams that's called the equity theory. That equity theory talks about how things become imbalanced. And when that happened, and I perceive that you... Or putting in less effort than me, but getting rewarded greater than I am. I'm going to try to achieve a couple of things. One of them is either going to be I'm going to increase my input and hopefully that somebody going to notice it and I can rise above you. Or I'm going to decrease my input because I'm not receiving that so that I can try to equalize my input and my output because guess what? You're not putting out as much as me, but you're making $3 an hour. I'm putting out more than you and I'm making $2 an hour. So either I can get them to give me $3 an hour or $4 if I'm doing more than you, or at least bring me up to that three to be equal with you. If that doesn't happen, then I'm gonna start decreasing my input. Uh, and then there's the expectancy theory. So I expect that if you have a DNP, I'll have a DNP, And let's just say everything else is almost equal. Then I want that same equal opportunity afforded that you want. And you want the same that is afforded to you. And so looking at those things through different lens, and then there's also a theory out there by Watson, which is a nursing theory on human caring. We need to talk about that particular theory because from my perspective, that get to the bottom of it. Do I respect you as another human being? And I'm going to support you to help you to achieve your fullest potential as a researcher. And I'm not going to say, well, for some reason, I just don't like his haircut. So I'm going over here and find me another junior person that I can do. Or because if you're the type of person to say, but I really am interested in methodology. I've done a lot of study about that. So now you're a new faculty, but all of a sudden I want to just refer to you as a junior faculty. And I expect for you to keep your mouth closed, do what you're told, don't ask any questions. I'm depressing your ability to grow. Do I really have to do that in order for me to feel good or in order for me to be the senior person? I should not have to do that. Mm. So I I, I think that we have to begin to embrace people and we, we have to look at when we are building the team. We build a team around diversity of ideas because many people will build their team because they don't want anyone to have diverse ideas. They don't want people to come to the table with a different mindset, a different thinking. So true. If I really want the best outcome, for me, it's that person who can challenge me and think different from me and look at it through not my lens, but their lens or the patient lens or the community lens. And then we can begin to address that but it's just like I was doing a talk recently and, I, and someone said, well, you know, what would you ask us to do, you know, in terms of looking at diversity within the hospital? I was just honest with them. If I walk into your hospital today, you're going to see the same thing that I'm going to see. But what you have to ask yourself, do you want to see what I see? So if I go to your ICUs and you have five ICUs, and I only see one nurse on each unit on day shift that is non-white, do I really need to tell you you have a problem? Are you going to continue to tell me that? But guess what? They don't want to work in ICU. What do you mean they don't want? How how many surveys have you done? And don't tell me they won't be successful. You're talking to the wrong person. Like I said, I stepped right out of undergraduate school into an open heart unit, taking care of multi-generational patients. I was successful in that and yes at the time i was like three of 60 some registered nurses only three of us african-american two of us on evening shift because we did eight-hour shift back in the days and one on night shift it hasn't changed since then we we can't say that we've gotten better when the data says that we haven't that's what gets get us into trouble so either we believe the data or we don't. <laughs> and, and and some of the data around, you know, race and ethnicity back in 1950, when I looked at all of the uh, uh, diversity in terms of race and ethnicity within the nursing profession, we had uh, about 3. Maybe 4 percent that included both African American, Native Americans and anyone that was non-white. Fast forward today. We're talking about maybe about 17.8% or 20% if you look at the literature. Now, go ahead and do the division for me. And from 1950 to now, what did we add? Probably less than 1% <laughs> or maybe 1.12%? And we wanted to consider that progress? It's not. And, and so we have to own that. You know, If you say that, I don't know what is the, the population there. So let me use another state that I know about. But in the state of Kentucky, their entire population, except for 14%, classify themselves as Caucasian or white. So if I'm in the city of Louisville, and that's the University of Louisville sitting there, and they look at their diversity in terms of omission to the nursing program or either to the university, and they say that, well, our diversity for African-American matches the state diversity. That's 14%. But the city in which they reside in, the footprint of their campus is in Louisville that has 70% black. So if you want me to give you an award for your diversity, at least tell me that the state is 14%, the city is 70%, and you're at 30% then you make progress. You have something to get a gold star for.
1: I mean, this is one of the issues with uh, statistics is that they're so easy to fudge. And somebody can easily look at those numbers and say, oh, look, we're at 14%. The state's at 14. But like you said, when you actually zero in on that particular area that they're in, that zip code even, I mean, those figures change. Demographics shift. And, um, It's easy to lie with statistics, as we know.
0: And you look at almost every major academic medical center. You're going to find that as the pattern. But then they have to go back and say, so what is my patient population as well? Right. Okay. If the patient population in my hospital is, is up higher than what the state, then I need to make sure that these patients are seeing providers that look like them. Whether we and physicians are worse off than nursing, believe it or not, mm. you know. Uh, and, and so, and, and, and that's one of the things that I, I, I was saying to someone, and don't take this the wrong way because I wasn't picking on the males, but I said, when the last future of nursing report came out in 20, it said we should increase the percentage of males in nursing. We moved that needle faster than we ever moved it for race and ethnicity we was able to bump up to 11% within 10 years. And I just told you from 1950 up until now, we haven't moved needle that far. Because when, when I'm saying about uh, race and ethnicity, I was combining all of those. If I broke out just African-Americans and black nurses, in 1975, there was 3.2% African-American and black graduate nurses in the United States. The last HRSA report that came out in 19 and 2018 said that was only 7.8%. Wow. 75 to 2018. You got a four. You got about a 4.6% increase. And again, if you divide the number, that's less than 1% a decade. Okay? So those are the type I want to say let's break the statistics down and have the conversation. Don't keep telling me this is where you moved and this is, because I'm gonna tell you, if I'm at the table, I'm gonna break it down for you and tell you about it. And not because I'm trying to be in your face about it. But I need for you, you can't change what you can't realize. You can't say that you have to change if you don't measure your pre and post. Then I'm saying the same thing. If you're not looking at what you had pre-when you started this conversation about diversifying nursing. To where you are today and the change doesn't prove that you've done a good job don't don't keep trying to redo the data just own the facts and let's say something is going on let's begin to research it figure it out and say how do we make it better
1: right and figure out what are the causes what are the inputs that are you know like rather than uh, as you're saying reshuffle the numbers or re, you know just figure out like what are those root root cause issues that are leading to those outcomes
0: there's no one better at this than i'm going to say the people in healthcare care.
1: Hmm.
0: and when i say healthcare again i'm i'm speaking globally from, from from administration all the way down to you know the physicians and the nurses we know how to look at data and we know how to make data say what we wanted to say but more importantly we can also be the change that we want to see if we're willing to first challenge ourselves, you know and, and and I realize we have to do that without offending my colleagues, but i I can't remain silent if my colleagues doesn't want to really open the book, address the issues, and say, yes, we're smart enough to make this better. It's just like now with the most recent 2020 to 2030 Future Nursing that came out. Within that report, it is mentioned 194 times about racism. I, I wanna wait and see if my colleagues going to do a deep dive into that report, look at the data and say, we have an opportunity to change or we have an opportunity to skim over this and end up in the same place that we are today. How do I go back and respectfully say, I, I need for those people with those diverse, we, we say it very well in the literature, that diversity add diversity of thought, diversity make us better. That's fine. But how does it make that one person sitting at your desk, in your school, in your unit, bring it down to that granular level of the individual? because i can't tell how you feel but you can tell me how you feel mm. i'm not going to question your analysis of you i need to be able to embrace it and then ask myself am i a contributory or a supporter
1: so i only have one more question for you if you don't mind um, and You've been very good about offering really, really insightful pieces of advice to up-and-coming nurses and um, nurse researchers and leaders. Um, But I'm wondering if if you could extract one really important piece of advice that you would give to a student like myself who's an up-and-coming DNP trainee based on all your experience. Um, What do you wish someone told you when you were in my shoes? I'm trying to figure
0: out how to say this.
1: I think I wish someone would have told me, Martha, you need to stop
0: bootlegging as a researcher and just go ahead and become a researcher. <laughs> I mean, and I laugh at that, but I'm serious about it because I really didn't until later in my career that I really started appreciating just how much I do love research. I wish some of probably would have pulled me aside. And I can remember and some of this I take ownership of. You know, because I can remember one of my uh, faculty members when I was in my master's program, she had us to do take a research article and we we had to uh, read the article and and we had to, you know, do an analysis and write about it and all of that. And when I when she gave me the article, I looked at it totally different from everyone else in the class. And, And she sent me back. She said this. She said, I've used this article before for this assignment. This is the first time I've seen this particular viewpoint. Hmm. It was a positive comment. And then she later came back to me and sent me another article and said, now I want you to review this article. I was too young to appreciate what she was doing. But today we would have called that sponsorship. Hmm. She was getting ready to sponsor me into a high level and I didn't get it. (laughs) And, and, And now when I look back and reflect, I'm saying, you know what? she probably saw something in that intuitive mind of mine that says she's got a different way of looking at research articles and she's not afraid to put it out there. And then the fact that she was asking me to do another one, and I'm saying, I'm so pleased I got all this other assignment. I just pushed it back and I never did it. But the same person was also part of my chair. Believe it or not, back in the master's program, we had chairs for other research uh, mm-hmm. activities. And, uh, and so and when I wrote my article, I remember she said, are you gonna get this published? Again, I didn't get it. <laughs> I still have that paper today. It was never published, but she's kept saying, are you gonna get and I, I failed on it. So I would tell people, listen for those indirect observations where someone may be telling you without directly telling you, there's something in this, you ought to take it to the next step, you ought to do something else, and appreciate that. And also appreciate, and this is something I learned along the way, and again, I give my mother credit for it. Appreciate also the obstacles and the barriers that others will put in your way. I'm pointing my finger. The audience don't see me doing that, but you see me pointing my finger. That other may put barriers and obstacles in your way, but it is your responsibility to prove them wrong. If someone says you cannot achieve something, don't give them The opportunity to
1: be right. Thank you so, so much for doing this. This was absolutely wonderful. I'm going to end up listening to this three or four times to really let everything sink in. I really appreciate your time.
0: You're welcome. And thank you again just for reaching out to me. I I do appreciate it. And I've enjoyed just having a conversation with you. You put me in a different mindset. Now now I can go and start on that other paper I have to write. (laughs)
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. Any support, however small, will be profoundly helpful in continuously improving the episodes across time. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com and visit my website at about.me forward slash Ian Lane. If I ever review a paper you are an author on or you would like to join me to discuss some project you are doing, please send a note to that same email address. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you'll join me again next time.